Hello and welcome to a special podcast from the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here. And Sunday, March the 24th was World TB Day. Coinciding with this, the Lancet Infectious Diseases is publishing a series with the latest thoughts and updates about this complex, neglected infectious disease which still has a massive toll worldwide. What well, to help with the podcast, earlier I spoke to Dr. Marco Skito from the Division of HIV at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda in the United States. Dr. Skito, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet infectious diseases. You're very much one of the experts behind this Lancet Infectious Diseases TB series. It looks as though there might be a new gold standard for the diagnosis of TB, something called the expert RIF TB test. Do you think this is going to become the new gold standard? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of this test compared with conventional sputum microscopy? Well, thank you, Richard. But before really getting into the advantages and disadvantages, let's really review the gold standard method. So the current way of Diagnosing TB in many high-burden countries has remained unchanged for more than a century. A sputum sample is collected, a thick sphere is made, and stained to visualize bacteria under a microscope. Although a simple procedure requiring only a microscope, glass slides, some staining reagents, and a well-trained technician, the sensitivity of this test is on average about 50%. Now, in in 2009, the WHO Scientific and Technical Advisory Group adopted a, a newer method uh, called uh, LED fluorescence microscopy, and that was a little bit more sensitive. However, these directly observed tests are still not quite as sensitive enough and are particularly insensitive in certain populations, such as HIV and pediatric patients, who typically have difficulties in producing sputum. Nevertheless, the, the smear is identified as being positive. Then the samples may be sent to actually a central laboratory, if actually one exists in the country, for susceptibility testing, also known as DST. DST for tuberculosis requires culturing and the slow growth of bacteria from the sputum samples and, and, and testing the growth in the presence of drugs. So the turnaround time to get these results back to the patient is often measured in months due to a series of delays. I also already mentioned the slow growth of bacteria. There's a requirement for subculturing. Obviously, there's some shipping involved in this. And then there's the analysis and sending back the, the results to the clinic. And after all of this, there's uh, is a major issue is loss of follow-up. So if the TB re test results actually suggest multidrug-resistant TB as being in the, in the sample, being resistant to at least two of the most common first-line drugs known as rifampicin and isoniazid, the patient may not survive before the actual culture DST results return back to the lab. So a faster method of detecting tuberculosis and identifying individuals who harbor multidrug-resistant TB is, is really needed. Molecular amplification is a proven technology for the detection of mycobacterium tuberculosis. However, current methods are too complex for routine, widespread implementation in developing countries. Sample processing and DNA extraction really add significantly to this complexity, and, and, the, and it's the technical bottleneck for implementing new technologies in the field. So this new expert test therefore could off, offer real advantage? Right. The advantages are that it's a, it's a fairly relatively simple platform with a one or two day short re training requirement. You have to remember that in many of these resource limited countries, they don't have enough skilled technicians to perform complex molecular tests. So the expert assay integrates sputum processing, DNA extraction, and amplification using a cartridge-based technology. The system is also fairly is a closed system, is what we in the field call it, a closed system. It ensures that there's no risk of contamination. And when I mean contamination, I'm referring to the amplicons that are produced in the, in the assay, and that can result in false positives in, in and around the testing environment. There's also no requirement for biosafety facilities to handle aerosolized TB. And one of the best attributes of the expert test is that the results can be obtained in less than two hours, so the turnaround time is extremely quick compared to the gold standard. Importantly, it has...
similar sensitivity to culture and enables the simultaneous detection of rifampicin, which is the resistance, which is uh, one of the, the major drugs that's being used. Now, the disadvantages, you are right, there are a few disadvantages to these. And unfortunately, the other drug, isoniazid, which would define multi-drug resistant TB, is not detected at this time. Additional drug resistant testing, therefore, is needed to follow up the positive RIF test. There's a need for stable and reliable and uninterrupted power to run the samples. There's a restricted operating temperature range requiring air conditioning in most locations. The expert assay does require a bit more human resources and, and administrative support, and as a result, increases the workflow in the clinic settings and changes the workflow a little bit. Programmatically, the testing facility may see actually higher costs due to more people being on treatment and more individuals identified as potentially multi-drug resistance requiring additional testing and more expensive treatment regimens. However, I would also argue that this could be a good thing since you're putting more people on treatment and likely reducing transmission. Nevertheless, Rapid treatment initiation is challenging in some settings. There's a waste disposal system for cartridges is often an afterthought. And finally, the need for external quality assurance and annual calibration of the expert instrument are added expenses that usually are not compiled into the cost estimates. It sounds very exciting, but as usual, it's never straightforward and clear, you know, pros and cons, as you say. But just a final thing, where are we in terms of implementation of this expert RIF test? What's the plan? Is it, is it something that's being implemented rapidly or are people being cautious with it? And, and what settings is it, is it going to be used? It has been taken up quite rapidly in, in certain countries where they have the infrastructure really to support it. South Africa being the one that has really paved the way in implementing this particular test. Other countries are lagging, but they are in a smaller scale also implementing it. So if you look at it over the past two, two years since the expert MTB RIF assay has been um, given the green light by the WHO uh, in identifying both TB and HIV suspected uh, patients. It's been, you know, increasing consistently over the past two years. Paper two, Dr. Skeeto, looks specifically at the importance of biomarkers, TB biomarkers. Why is this so important uh, in the development of drugs, of vaccines and diagnostics? That's a really good question because a biomarker really can be defined as an objective characteristic that can be measured. It can really differentiate uh, a normal from a pharmacological response to a therapeutic intervention. It can differentiate a normal from a, a correlative protection as a result of vaccination and a pathogenic biological process such as infection or disease progression. Biomarkers can be the basis for surrogate clinical endpoints in a trial. The value of that surrogate endpoint lies in its ability to predict clinically meaningful events in short trials with relatively few patients. Thus, biomarkers are able to accelerate clinical research by not having to follow trial participants over a long term and being able to predict infection, cure, reactivation of latent TB, or protective immune responses. So upon the discovery of a biomarker, it will need to be validated in, in, in those user settings and populations. And that will require the development of well-characterized cohorts and biobanks containing multiple specimens that have been collected using standardized procedures, have well-documented clinical data, and, and adequate serial samples. These biomarkers are really critical for developers to test and evaluate proposed or newly discovered biomarkers is really the major bottleneck for advancing the development of not only new drugs and vaccines, but especially diagnostics. Clearly, this is a really crucial area, but, but who's taking the responsibility here? Is there a coordinated effort in terms of leading the field with 
progress in biomarkers? Yeah, there are several groups that are looking at this. The uh, NIH has itself uh, looked at biobanks together with the FDA, a biobank protocol for the inclusion of clinical trial specimens. There are other groups such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who have provided funding for development of biomarkers. So this is a a multi-sponsored look at trying to identify better biomarkers for TB. Now paper three looks at the interaction, if you like, between TB and non-communicable diseases, NCDs. Now this is interesting and I'm postulate, I just wonder whether that actually could benefit, because actually tuberculosis could then effectively be picked up by by inclusion in other health programs, NCD health programs, rather than separate TB health programs. What's what's your view on that? You know, I think if you're talking about a healthcare program in the developed world, I think your assumptions or postulations would be correct. However, TB thrives in poverty, deprivation, ignorance, and and really envelopes the poorest countries of the world. Unfortunately, the incidence of of TB is driven by socioeconomic factors such as poor access to and delivery of healthcare services, HIV, and, and migration of people from other endemic countries. Physicians are often in short supply, um, and many who seek medical care walk for hours and sometimes days to seek treatment. The medical professionals have a limited time to seek sick patients, are often dealing with difficult working conditions, and face drug and reagent and supply shortages. I think the added burden of non-communicable diseases will exasperate the problem and compound the factors that will tip the balance in favor of the, the bacterium. The fragile public health care system is fragmented due to the way in which donor funding mechanisms operate. Um, they're currently or, are overworked, overtaxed, and aren't able to really handle the complexity or the magnitude of this impending disaster. However, I'm not going to be a everything that, I'm not going to say anything that's all doom and gloom. If some countries, and, and I know several uh, have d- actually d- adopted and developed a, a national health care plan and integrated those TB services with other communicable diseases, like HIV, for example, is probably one of the best ones, as well as non-communicable diseases, um, this would unlock potential commonalities and synergies and optimize those scarce resources while maintaining some vertical elements to secure those essential functions such as supply chain management, monitoring, and surveillance. So public health care system has to treat patients and not just common conditions affecting the population. TB disease is a disease of families, and, and additional services including family planning, uh, sexually transmitted infections, childhood immunizations, and a host of other preventative and diagnostic tools to evaluate things like hypertension, diabetes, and heart disease, which has been increasing in many of these countries, should really be implemented in order to achieve the goal of a healthier population. Paper 4 looks specifically at new drug regimens and drug susceptibility testing. And I guess the question here is, you know, there's always a a will to push ahead and discover and introduce new drugs. But is the danger here that if susceptibility testing is not properly done, then you could actually be contributing to the emergence of resistance here? Yeah, first of all, I have to mention that this is really an exciting time in the TB therapeutic field. Bedaclin, also known as Serturo, was granted FDA approval this year to treat multidrug-resistant and extensively drug-resistant TB. So despite concerns relating to its safety profile due to QT interval prolongation, this is really the first new medicine introduced to fight TB in more than 40 years. There are an additional about four new classes of compounds being evaluated in new regimens that are currently in Phase 2 and Phase 3 trials. The major issue, as you've brought up rightly so, is that these new drugs may be be uh, put out there in the populations, and that these drugs are going to be combined with existing first-line drugs, such as 
pyrazinamide, and second-line drugs as, such as fluoroquinolones. Now, pyrazinamide, also known as PZA, is, is present in most new regimens. This is principally due to the, the fact that it's, it has synergistic effects with many of these newer drugs. Many of us in the field are trying to work with faster diagnostic methods in order to, to determine resistance to, to this, this particular drug called PZA. The current culture technology used to identify that resistance is cumbersome, it takes too long to resolve by standard culture assays, and is fraught with false negative results. So a rapid diagnostic test for the resistance to PZA would probably require molecular detection. But additional research is really needed to establish the genetic basis of resistance and relink the, the mutation, and actually there are several mutations, it's, it's really found throughout the gene, with a clinical outcome. So being able to rapidly and accurately identify drug resistance profile in TB patients will become even more important to prevent functional monotherapy treatment since the bacteria that are resistant to all drugs in the regimen accept the new chemical entity that's being evaluated. This scenario will likely drive resistance to the new drug. So in addition to this, funders such as the TB Alliance, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and NIH are, are working with drug manufacturers to ensure that these new assays are going to be deployed in the field to survey for resistance to these new drugs when they become available. Now, MDR-TB, multidrug-resistant TB, this is an increasing concern worldwide. What's your view? What factors do you think are contributing to, to the increase in MDR-TB that we are seeing at the moment? Although MDR is typically a small percentage of the total TB burden, some countries, for example, in Eastern Europe, see an excess of 30% of multidrug resistance in di newly diagnosed patients, and this suggests that a successful transmission of drug-resistant strains occurs in the population. This is surprising because the acquisition of drug resistance typically results in a fitness cost of the bacteria. However, in the case of TB, multi-drug resistant and extensively drug resistant mycobacteria appear not to only be transmitted, but are able to establish that infection just as well as drug susceptible TB. MDR is usually more prevalent in previously treated patients, indicating that these patients may not only have taken their drugs as prescribed, either deliberately or because the drugs are not available due to stockouts. Alternatively, there may have been inadequate tissue distribution, which results in lower effective drug concentrations. And finally, the infecting, the infecting population of TB may have been partially resistant to some of the drugs in the treatment cocktail, allowing the fittest ones to replicate. Another factor is that some drug classes are used extensively in parts of the world to treat other endemic diseases and can usually lead to cross-resistance. So for instance, fluoroquinolones as a broad-spectrum antibiotic are used in the Philippines for a variety of indications, and consequently there's a lot of fluoroquinolone resistance in that part of the world. A particularly alarming issue I'd like to bring up is that drug resistance may be accelerated due to the poor quality control of drug manufactured from some questionable companies that sell these compounds to the private sector for discounted prices. Prices. These drugs have a lower active ingredients, poor dispersal qualities, and are typically priced lower and can find their way into public health care programs. So once drug-resistant strains have actually been selected, they propagate in the community because of a variety of factors, such as the lack of rapid, patient-accessible point-of-care diagnostic to identify drug-resistant TB. There's often insufficient second-line drug options present. There's poor patient adherence due to lengthy and prolonged treatment. Treatment can last as long as two years. There's social stigma, deprivation, and poverty. Uh, uh, in many of these countries, there's insufficient political will, inadequate resources to follow up for infection control. It's also especially problematic in children because diagnosis is, is even more difficult. There's a huge pill burden, and oftentimes there's age 
uh, appropriate formulations are, are really unavailable for, the, for those children. In addition, second-line injectables cause hearing loss and is a major concern. And finally, the community itself really isn't engaged into what's happening. It's because they are so poor, it falls on deaf ears. You just talked about a community engaging there, which is, leads neatly into, into my next question, which is relating to Paper 6 in the series. Listeners may not be familiar with this term, community engagement. Can you just briefly talk about the concepts here and, and how community engagement can can benefit both patients and researchers in the TB community? Sure. Community engagement uh, really just means it means just that. It's, it's collaborating with and through groups of people affiliated by geographical proximity to the, that population, a special interest or, or some similar situation to, to address those issues affecting the well-being of those people. So community engagement has been central to the HIV-AIDS research agenda involving community advisory boards, also known as CABs, at clinical trial sites, and they really represent the individuals on a range of issues regarding trial design, informed consent, and community benefits. The role and potential value of the, of the community in TB trials need to be really further examined and could make huge positive contributions to the ethical and quality and, and scientific success of, of those trials. So funders and sponsors really need to better recognize that the ultimate public health effects of new drugs and vaccines will be determined by social as well as those biological factor, factors that they're measuring, and that community engagement should rightly, rightly receive a proportion of that trial budget. Engaging with the community in trial planning and at that design stage will help ensure that the trial fully enrolls so that you can get by and you can uh, resolve a lot of the recruitment issues, that volunteers continue to return for follow-up visits and that's uh, regarded as retention issues. And the community fully cooperates by raising awareness within the community by event planning and reaching out to educate the population. Thus, community engagement provides a feedback loop to the site and the trial to be able to identify the social issues that can affect and alter how volunteers interact and participate in TB clinical trials. And again, this has huge implications on the success of a clinical trial. Obviously, if the trial is unsuccessful due to social issues, it would be a blow to the research community, but it will also have dire consequences for the patient community who need those better interventions. So to initiate this process, the CPTR, which is the Critical Path to TB Drug Regimens, have published a good participatory practice guideline that can be downloaded from the CPTR website. The guidelines establish common principles, practices, and language for trial implementers, trial sponsors, as well as relevant stakeholders to make this effort commonplace in TB trials. This should be a great start, I think, in, in establishing a dialogue with that community and hopefully promote activism, which, which is really sorely needed for, for the TB field. The obvious comparison, it may be an unfair one, obviously is with HIV AIDS, where social engagement, community engagement, activism has just been there the whole, for the whole time throughout the history of the HIV pandemic. It just hasn't been there in TB. Do you really think the TB community can get its act together in that way? Well, you know, HIV has had um, a number of high-profile cases, and, and I think that the TB community is starting to look at the playbook that HIV has had and will start to implement some of those same sort of techniques in order to better engage the political side of TB and try to, by doing that, it will affect hopefully the funding because yeah, TB has is, is typically always received less funding than, than other high-priority diseases. But I see that that's now starting to change. I think that in the past few years, we're starting to see 
more and more funding going to TB research than has been in the past. A lot of that uh, is due not only to, to government as well as um, you know, non-private non -pri funding, such as industry, especially for the drug uh, side of, of things, uh, but also a little bit for the diagnostics as well. We must draw our discussion to a close. It's fascinating. There's so many aspects uh, of this series and of, well, of TB generally. But uh, just a final passing thought. TB exerts its greatest toll um, in sub-Saharan Africa and comorbidities, particularly with HIV. But also in wealthier Western countries, there are problems too. I mean, if you take my country here in the United Kingdom, we've seen TB incidents, the numbers of new cases of TB going up in the past few years. So why have so-called wealthier countries not got their act together as well? There are still problems. It's not just a problem of resource-poor settings, is it? No, I think we need to remain vigilant. And, you know, with the ability of people to travel and migrate, especially from those areas of, of high endemic countries, we're starting to see more and more being imported into many of these countries in, in Europe and in North America. In the U.S., just a month ago, there was an outbreak in Los Angeles in the homeless community. Several people died of that, and, and several thousands were, were, were exposed. So this is not just a, a problem uh, within uh, these high burden countries and that there's there's issues with with the TB in low burden countries just because you're infected does not necessarily mean that you will come down with disease so typically five to ten percent of those individuals who are actually infected with TB actually progress to to disease and so it, it becomes very difficult to identify in the face of uh, countries where they vaccinated for example with BCG in the US they don't vaccinate with BCG so you can uh, detect uh, the possibility of having TB a little bit easier. However, it's still a very difficult thing, especially for individuals coming in from, from highly endemic areas. And this is uh, something that, that's constantly constantly being being found, primarily in the U.S. in homeless shelters, but also in, in, in schools, especially schools that, that are uh, in, in some of the poor rural areas and that are